Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following is a presentation of the Four Center podcast feed. Moss Eisley Spaceport. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Snaggletooth. Hammerhead. Walrus Man. Many Star Wars fans will recognize these names as the original aliases of some of the characters from the Moss Eisley Cantina. But that wretched hive of scum and villainy wouldn't have been so iconic if it hadn't been for Stuart, Kay, and Rick. 
These people, along with many others, are the reason the cantina scene in Star Wars, A New Hope, became one of the most memorable scenes in cinematic history. Because 2017 marks the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, I wanted to go behind the scenes, or more appropriately, behind the bar, of Chalman's Cantina. How did the production team create the creatures in that space-watering hole? What were some of the challenges they faced? And why has this scene captured the imaginations of audiences for two decades? We'll try to find out, so grab your blaster and saddle up to the bar, because we're going behind the scenes of the Moss Eisley Cantina. This is The Jedi Beat. I'm your host, Jennifer Landa. Before he had a script in May of 1973, George Lucas had a 14-page treatment titled The Star Wars. There wasn't much of a plot, but the treatment did have two scenes that would go on to become legendary. One scene was the epic space battle that we now know as the Death Star Assault. The second scene took place in an alien-filled cantina where there was a laser sword confrontation. There are some notable character differences in the original treatment, but the description of the cantina scene is almost identical to the action in the finished film. Here's an excerpt from George Lucas's original treatment. The general, Luke Skywalker, one of the bureaucrats and one of the boys venture into a shabby cantina on the outskirts of the spaceport, looking for the rebel contact who will help them get a spacecraft. The murky little den is filled with a startling array of weird and exotic aliens laughing and drinking at the bar. The bureaucrat and the boy are both terrified as the general orders two drinks and questions the bartender about the rebel contact man. A group of bullies begin to taunt and ridicule the boy. Skywalker attempts to avoid a confrontation, but worse comes to worst, and he is forced to fight. With a flash of light, his laser sword is out. One of the bullies lies double, slashed from chin to groin, and Skywalker, with quiet dignity, replaces his sword in its sheath. The entire fight has lasted a matter of seconds. Many things in that 14-page treatment would change, but that shabby cantina would survive draft after draft. In fact, after Lucas wrote his second draft, about the only thing that remained was the laser sword confrontation in the bar and the final space battle. In 1975, two years and two rough drafts later, George Lucas's negotiations with 20th Century Fox had stalled. The studio was understandably skeptical about committing to George's ambitious script. It didn't help that he hadn't given them an official budget for the film, although he figured $3 million was a fair estimate. George was an indie filmmaker at heart. Star Wars producer Gary Kurtz, however, knew better. No one had ever made a film like this before, so no one knew how to calculate the costs of what they were trying to achieve. So George and Gary came up with an idea. They'd hire artists to create production illustrations and models. This would give them something tangible to base the estimates on and hopefully get the studio executives excited enough to greenlight the space fantasy picture. Enter an artist named Ralph McQuarrie. McQuarrie created around 21 production paintings and five key illustrations based on the second draft. The fifth painting dated March 6th 1975, was simply titled Cantina. 
the painting depicts a darkly lit bar with a tall creature standing in the middle of the scene, holding a blaster. This creature has a long pointy tail and a head shape similar to Zeb's from Star Wars Rebels. A human character is fearfully facing off with this creature, while a stormtrooper, R2 and 3PO, and other hairy monsters look on. While McCory's paintings were helpful in showing George Lucas's vision for the film, they didn't help producer Gary Kurtz lock down a realistic budget. Would they need six million? 10 million? 15 million? Who knew? As Gary remarked, quote, you have to design the sets before you know how much things are gonna cost, end quote. Now, to give you an idea of what it cost to make a movie in those days, a comedy film cost about 20 to 22 million. A more expensive action-adventure film with visual effects would probably be anywhere from 25 to 35 million. So after much negotiating, planning, and trying to calm 20th Century Fox's panic of a ballooning budget, Gary Kurtz told Fox they could make the film with an $8.2 million budget. 20th Century Fox balked. If Star Wars was going to be made, it would only get $6.9 million to do it. Everyone but Fox knew it'd take a miracle to pull that one off. As George said, quote, it's really a $15 million movie being made for half its budget, end quote. Budget restraints would force George and the Star Wars team to cut corners wherever they could. Scenes were eliminated or rewritten so they could be shot in a cheaper set. All departments would be constrained on money and the amount of time they had to prepare and produce visual and practical effects, costumes, props, and sets. And while many at the time might have seen those constraints as a burden, one might argue that the lack of resources on Star Wars is what gave birth to creativity and innovation. In 1975, makeup artist Stuart Freeborn was working on another 20th Century Fox film, The Omen, starring Gregory Peck. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? One day, while Freeborn was working in the lab making some fake teeth and eyeballs, a young guy walked into the room. Who the hell is this? Freeborn thought. This young fella came in, started walking around all my labs, picking things up, and I go, oh, strange, I thought, he's got a bit of a nerve just walking around like this. But then finally he came up to me and he said, oh, my name's George Lucas. I've written a script for a film called Star Wars. In it, I've got a cantina sequence similar to what you'd have in England where everybody goes to a pub on a Saturday night. He was so genuine about it, I thought, well, as young as he is, I believe in him. He's got something. I'll do what I can for him. It could be, you know, quite something. And so, Stuart Freeborn was hired as the head of the makeup department for Star Wars. Stuart wanted a better sense of what George wanted his Star Wars creatures and aliens to look like. So he took George into his storeroom and showed him some of his previous creations. George saw something he liked. It was a blue alien head with smooth skin, a small nose and mouth, and no ears. That was the one. The alien was perfect for the Star Wars cantina scene. Stewart replied that because the mask had been made for a bird's eye green pea commercial, the character was the property of the food company. But maybe he could modify the character to make it look like something new. George liked the idea, so Stewart set aside the mask for later and got to work on his first project, Chewbacca. It was January in 1976, and pre-production on Star Wars was underway. 
Stuart Freeborn was working on his biggest, most important creature for the film, Chewbacca the Wookiee. For four weeks, he worked alone on the Wookiee, shaping his face to be a combination of a dog, monkey, and cat. He based the Wookiee design on a sketch by Ralph McQuarrie. Occasionally, George would pop in and fuss with the creature's nose, pulling it out and pushing it back in. Straight yak hair was used for Chewie's long hair, and Freeborn tried to make a monster that looked friendly, even if the Wookiee could be ferocious. Making Chewbacca was time-consuming, and with filming set to begin in March, Stewart assembled a team to help. They had 10 weeks to make the aliens of the Moss Eisley Cantina. The Moss Eisley Cantina had been a scene in George Lucas's mind ever since 1973. Having Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi enter a bar filled with weird creatures was supposed to be a surprising reveal for the audience watching the film. During pre-production, Stewart and the makeup crew set up shop in a small room at Elstree Studios in the UK and got to work. The room was filled with tables, chairs, modeling materials, paints, glues, and foam latex ovens. The seven makeup artists, along with the head of their department, Stuart Freeborn, worked together in the cramped room as the smell of chemicals filled the air. As I'm sure you know, there are two types of patrons in the Moss Eisley Cantina, aliens and humans. For the aliens, the makeup team created full over-the-head masks made from latex, foam, fake fur, etc. For the humans, the makeup team made prosthetics like fake noses, twisted lips, false teeth, and cheek enhancements. On set, these prosthetic-wearing human patrons were referred to as the, quote, uglies. I'm not sure if it was because of their prosthetic features or because many of the actors who played the humans in the cantina were represented by the Ugly Agency, which was an unfortunately named talent agency in the UK that specialized in odd-looking people. In designing the look of the odd-looking human patrons, Stewart had photographs taken of all the actors. He then did sketches on the photos, adding a scar here, enlarging a nose there. Stewart then showed the sketches to George, and if the director approved, Stewart then relayed that direction to the artist creating the prosthetics. While Stewart spent much of his time in the workroom busily crafting Chewbacca, he guided and managed the makeup artists as they created the Cantina Aliens. Each project would begin with Stuart giving the artist a little bit of direction, and then as the artists were modeling and shaping, Stuart would check in with them. Nick Maley was one of the makeup artists in that small room in 1976, and he recalls, quote, As we finished one project, we'd start another, grab a lump of clay, squeeze it into some kind of shapely thing, and Stu would come along and say, Oh, I think that's going fine, or I don't like that. But there wasn't any indication that told us that this was a particular creature that George had specifically asked for, end quote. Nick Maley was 27 years old when he worked on Star Wars. It was his first time working on a big creature effects movie. Nick's initial project for Star Wars was to make alien eyes by blowing compressed air through color light gels, a method created by Stuart Freeborn. And while it was a revolutionary technique, there was a reason the project was given to the new kid. Nick Maley told Yahoo News, quote, It was really cold, and outside we had a vacuum machine that we used for making the eyeballs for all the characters. So I was first relegated to that, I think, because nobody else wanted to do it. End quote. 
Once he proved he could handle that task, Nick was promoted to making prosthetic foam pieces and worked with Stuart's son, Graham, in the foam lab. Graham Freeborn was a whiz in the makeup effects workshop. His motto was to work simply, quick, and effective. Graham ended up creating almost half of the cantina creatures for the principal photography shoot. He made the Snaggletooths, Tequil and Zutton, Cabe, the Bat Alien, Gerindin, the long-snooted goggles-wearing spy, the lizard-looking Soren cousins, and the walrus-looking Mosep Benid. Graham's exceptional talent came from not only his father, Stuart, but also his mother, Kay. Kay and Stuart were a married makeup team, but Kay was a talented makeup artist in her own right. She would go on to work on all of the films in the original Star Wars trilogy. Together, Kay, Graham, and Stuart would go on to make some of the most iconic Star Wars characters like Chewbacca, Yoda, and the Ewoks. Yep, yep. Back on the set of Star Wars in 1976, Kay dashed back and forth from the makeup workshop to set, but she spent the majority of her time working with the actors. She combed Chewbacca's hair, helped actor Paul Blake put on his Greedo head, applied makeup to Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, and created Princess Leia's glamorous makeup look. Recently, the London Cosmetics Museum posted a photo on their Instagram of Carrie Fisher's Leia makeup chart for The Empire Strikes Back. The chart is filled with notes by Kay Freeborn, and it gives a glimpse at really what a skilled makeup artist Kay was. The Freeborns had a large presence in the makeup workshop, but there were others modeling and molding in that small workroom in Elstree Studios. Charles Parker created the Uglies prosthetics that he'd later apply to the human cantina characters. You might recognize his handiwork on Were the Bartender. Hey, we don't serve their kind here. And Dr. Cornelius Evison. We're wanted men. I have the death sentence on 12 systems. Sylvia Croft, who was a makeup friend of Kay Freeborn's, helped make teeth and assemble items when she wasn't needed on set. During the 10 weeks of pre-production, Stewart and his team churned out some impressive creatures. Makeup artist Chris Tucker created Ponda Baba, then known as Walrus Man, the ill-fated character that gets his arm cut off by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Chris also created Yamri, the praying mantis character sitting at the far end of the bar. The creature was originally designed by Stuart Freeborn, but Chris made the elaborate puppet that looks really cool, but you can barely see it in the film. Effects and makeup artist Robin Grantham worked with Stuart Freeborn to create Snailhead, who we now know as Tisvit. This character has a human body, but its head resembles a fly. Robin created Snailhead's bulbous insect eyes by layering fishnets over rows of giant prismatic discs. Again, the fly alien looks awesome, but he too can barely be seen in the background. Out of all the cantina characters that the makeup team effects created, George had a favorite. The character was the same one that had caught his eye several weeks before, but you'd never know it looking at the character now. Because the makeup effects team only had 10 weeks to create a bar full of aliens, they ended up repurposing some of Stuart Freeborn's old masks from previous jobs. One mask was a blue alien with smooth skin, a small nose and mouth, and no ears. 
Graham Freeborn started the transformation of Greedo. First, he modeled a pair of antenna-like extensions that would later be attached to the head. According to Wikipedia, Greedo's saucer-shaped antennae can detect vibrations. But back in 1976, before Wikipedia, Nick Mealy wanted to know, were the antennae extra ears or some sort of radar detector? Who cares, Graham answered, as he modeled a slab covered in wart-like bumps and long finger extensions with suckers on the end. Kay Freeborn and Sylvia Croft created Greedo's hands. They took the finger extensions made by Graham and applied them to latex dishwashing gloves. Greedo's spiky mohawk was created out of foam latex, and Nick Maley painstakingly applied each wart onto the Rodian's head. Large, pupil-less eyes were added over the bird's-eye alien's existing eyes, and tooling-based paint was used to transform the creature from blue to green. A star was born. Of course, not all of the characters were slam dunks. One day, George Lucas walked into the workshop. He had an idea for a cantina character. As Nick Maley recalls, quote, George came in with a drawing of a multi-eyed blob that he'd done while sitting in the airport, and yeah, we built it, and we all hated it, end quote. That blob is now known as Weoslia, the tall insectoid land speeder dealer that buys Luke's X-34 for 2,000 credits. Weoslia has an oversized round head with multiple eyes looking in all different directions. She's perhaps not the best looking alien, but they can't all be winners, right? While Stewart and his team had a lot of creative freedom in creating the Cantina characters, George and costume designer John Molo were frequent collaborators. According to Molo, he and George sat down and created a complete chart of every bard patron. Quote, I drew a little figure for each type of person, and he decided he wanted so many peasants, so many Martians, so many space pilots, so many pirates, and that was all tied in with the heads which Stuart had designed and could produce. Then it was just a question of getting together with Stuart and making sure the heads and the costumes fit together." End quote. The makeup effects team worked as quickly as they could during those 10 weeks. They had finished most of the background characters and were beginning on the creatures that would get their close-ups on film. Time was running out since George moved the cantina sequence a week earlier in the shooting schedule. Not to mention, he kept adding monsters to the roster. But they were three quarters of the way done and they could finish all the creatures George was asking for if they just stayed on target. It was probably the worst scenario for everyone involved. Stuart Freeborn was sick and needed to be hospitalized. I couldn't find anything on the record about his exact cause of illness, but Stuart himself said he was physically and emotionally exhausted from having worked nonstop for a long, long time. Being in the hospital was a much needed break for Stuart. And while he was always the professional, his work on Star Wars would have to be left unfinished. It was late March of 1976, and with their supervisor gone, the special effects makeup team soldiered on. They had more monsters to make, and regardless of whether they finished or not, the show would go on. Stage 6, Interior Cantina, Scene 50. 2 Action! Filming inside the Moss Eisley Cantina began on April 13, 
1976 at EMI Studios in England. There were 42 extras on set, and after John Molo had fussed with all of them, changing outfits and alien heads if something didn't look right, they were ready to start rolling. Because of the film's tight budget, many of the costumes were from previous movies or TV shows. One spacesuit was from the 1950 film Destination Moon. Another was from the television show Lost in Space. Five of the spacesuits were from Western Costume, a costume warehouse located in North Hollywood. The actors portraying the humans in the bar had it pretty easy in comparison to the creatures of the cantina. Remember Yamri, the elaborate praying mantis puppet I mentioned earlier? Actor Jack Purvis, who also portrayed the chief Jawa in A New Hope, was tasked with puppeteering the oversized insect. Jack hid under Yamri's skirt and operated it using strings attached to the alien's limbs. This giant puppet ended up being one of the most complex props made for the scene, and you can barely see it on screen. Actor Lori Good was a last-minute replacement to play a Sauron, the lizard-like creature that is a Trandoshan subspecies. Fun fact, Good supposedly portrayed the stormtrooper in A New Hope, the one that famously hits his head upon entering the docking control room on the Death Star. And while it may have been hot wearing that bucket, the Sauron's head was practically unbearable. Good told StarWarsInterviews.com, quote, Sauron's head was unbelievably stifling, barely able to breathe, and what I breathed out would remain in the helmet to be inhaled again, end quote. As time passed while filming, the two commiserated about how difficult it was to breathe in these darn masks. Then, for whatever reason, Lori Good shoved his hand into the mouth of his mask and breathed. It may have looked strange, but according to Good, it allowed for better ventilation. This story sounded too weird to be true, but I did find a photo of Barbara Franklin in her Sauron costume with her hand in her mouth. One of the big moments in the cantina was supposed to be the confrontation between Obi-Wan Kenobi and the alien then known as Walrus Man. As you know, Obi-Wan severs the arm of Ponda Baba with his lightsaber in the altercation. And as I'm sure you know, after Obi-Wan whips out his lightsaber, there is a nice close-up of Ponda Baba's severed arm lying on the cantina floor. Originally, George shot the scene as a single master shot, meaning that you'd see Obi-Wan whip out his lightsaber, sever Ponda Baba's arm, and watch it fall to the floor all in one wide shot. The problem was the Aqualish's hooves for hands. Take after take, Pondababa's severed arm flopped to the floor with a gun still stuck in its alien oven mitt of a hand. It looked ridiculous. But it would have to do for now because they had to wrap the scene and move on. The characters in the UK Cantina shoot are now familiar faces that are beloved by fans, but back on that day in April 1976, it was clear that Star Wars was a low-budget space fantasy film. The monsters that Stuart Freeborn and his team created were originally meant to be background characters, not prominently featured in the cantina as they were now. Many of the costumes were from other productions, the mask-wearing actors couldn't breathe, Greedo's hands were wobbly and its fingers kept getting tangled together, which made it difficult for actor Paul Blake to hold his blaster. Three years of anticipation, three years of George 
pitching this laser sword confrontation in a space cantina to studio executives, producers, and his production team. And like Ponda Baba's arm, George felt the scene was a flop. The set looked incredible, the principal actors were great, but the cantina characters and the overall vibe of the scene did not live up to anyone's expectations. Even Mark Hamill, who was always a cheery optimist on set, couldn't sugarcoat the sad state of affairs. Quote, it was really imaginatively described, and then you go in there and it looks like the Nutcracker Suite. You know, a frog guy, a mouse girl. It was really disappointing. End quote. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. 
but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's well known that George Lucas's Star Wars had its share of production problems. And most of those problems can be traced back to money, or lack thereof. In September of 1976, Ralph McQuarrie and artist Ron Cobb started making sketches of aliens for the planned reshoot of the cantina scene. George was so disappointed with how the cantina scene turned out, he was determined to fix it. George wanted 15 to 20 new creatures for the reshoots. They'd have to reconstruct the cantina set, and he needed to shoot additional dialogue between Han and Greedo, since he had to axe the scene between Han and Jabba the Hutt. George Lucas pleaded with 20th Century Fox to give him $100,000 more for the Star Wars reshoots. They said no. Star Wars was already a million dollars over budget. Producer Gary Kurtz and George enlisted the help of Alan Ladd Jr., who was the president of Fox at the time. Ladd believed in George's vision and had always been an advocate for Star Wars. While he couldn't get them all the money they needed, he managed to convince Fox's board of directors to give the team $20,000 for the reshoots. Now it was time to get to work on the cantina, again. Stuart Freeborn was still out sick, so George started putting out feelers for a new makeup effects supervisor. The cantina reshoot would take place in Los Angeles, so they needed to hire someone talented, but also a local hire to cut any travel costs. Thanks to a referral by visual effects artist Dennis Murin, 25-year-old Rick Baker got the job. Rick had six weeks to make as many crazy-looking monsters as possible, but he couldn't do it alone. Even though he had committed to working on Star Wars, he was simultaneously working on the sci-fi horror film The Incredible Melting Man. Rick had to give The Incredible Melting Man priority since they hired him first and they were paying him more than Star Wars. So, to get the job done, Rick put together a makeshift creature shop and hired five young and unemployed artists and stop-motion animators. Rick would supervise the team since his time would be divided between two film sets. The new Cantina Creature crew was young, excited to have the opportunity, and hungry to show off what they could do. There was model maker Lane Liska, who worked on the aliens Hemdazan, Godel, and Muftak. Stop motion animators John Berg and Phil Tippett, who both designed the holochess sequence on the Millennium Falcon. Makeup effects artist Doug Beswick, who sculpted the Bith Band. An assistant makeup artist Rob Botton, who was a protege of Rick Baker's. They were like a ragtag team coming together to pull off the ultimate Vegas heist. Except it wasn't Las Vegas, it was Moss Eisley. And it wasn't a heist, it was movie magic. Over the course of those six weeks, the second unit crew made some of the cantina's most memorable patrons, like Moma Nadon, then called Hammerhead, Muftak, the furry white spider-looking creature, and Figrin Dan and the modal nodes. Some were based on the designs by Ralph McQuarrie and Ron Cobb, some were complete originals, and some were creatures created over existing masks that Rick had made for other jobs. 
like the blue milk sipping werewolf that is featured in the original cut of the film. That mask was originally made by Rick Baker for a mini mass production of Halloween werewolf masks in 1973. Baker was relieved when that werewolf character would later be replaced in the special edition of A New Hope. He recently tweeted that he was happy with the change because he thought it was going to just be a background alien not used in the close-up shots. Another mask that was recycled from Rick Baker's inventory is the character nicknamed Terminal Man. He's the gaunt-faced older gentleman wearing a kind of maroon hooded robe and sitting behind Moma Nadon. The slip-on mask was Baker's original take on Frankenstein's monster a reconstructed man with electric terminals on his head. Like the werewolf, Terminal Man was also made as a Halloween mask. Model maker Lane Liska was in charge of transforming the mask into the character we now know as Trento Duaba. Now you may have noticed that there's another cantina patron that looks eerily similar to the Terminal Man. The only difference is that this character is wearing a black hooded robe and has a long scraggly mustache. Apparently, someone on the day of filming reused the Trento Duaba mask and slapped a mustache on it to make it look different. Alas, no one has taken credit for the mustachio transformation, so for now, it remains a Star Wars mystery. One day while Rick and his team were in the workroom, George came in and said, you know, I'd like to do a scene here where we've got a band of aliens playing some music. Rick liked the idea, but told George he didn't think he'd be able to make a bunch of alien musicians with what time was left. Then Rick noticed a mask in the corner. What if he did a mask cut of the masks so that all of the alien band members were identical? Fine, George said. Doug Beswick was put in charge of sculpting the masks, and thus, the Bith Band was formed. At the end of the six weeks, Rick Baker and the second unit crew had made almost 30 aliens for the cantina. And on January 24th and 25th, 1977, the team assembled in a small studio on La Brea Avenue in Los Angeles. Visual effects artists at ILM built a bandstand and a section for a booth where the new aliens would drink and mingle. The first shot of the day was the Han and Greedo scene. George needed to add some dialogue to the scene that could explain why Han owed money to Jabba, since the scene with the hut had to be cut. Only Greedo would be on camera though, since Harrison Ford's lines would be dubbed in later. George also wasn't happy with how the Greedo mask looked in the first shoot. He told Rick Baker, quote, you know, we've got this mask, but with the person wearing the mask, it didn't work. He was moving his head and it didn't look like he was talking, end quote. So Doug Beswick added a small mechanism to the mask that would help move the mouth and appear more realistic. Actor Paul Blake portrayed Greedo in the UK shoot, but in Los Angeles, actress Maria de Aragon portrayed the Rodian. For the reshoot, they gave Maria a new, sturdier pair of alien hands to wear. The hands actually belong to another Star Wars alien costume. Now, if you've seen any of the behind-the-scenes photos from the reshoot, you'll notice one key difference between that Greedo and the original. He's wearing pink high heels. 
I have no idea why Maria chose to wear heels in the Greedo costume since that wasn't part of the attire, uh, but sometimes the simplest explanation is the most likely one because rumor has it that she wore the high heels simply because she liked them. While Maria was on set waiting for the crew to set up Greedo's first shot of the day, the mouth mechanism in the mask broke. After trying without success to fix the delicate mechanism, someone had a clever idea. Stick a clothespin in Maria's mouth. It sounds absurd, but that is exactly what Maria did. She put the clothespin between her teeth, which went to the end of Greedo's long pouty mouth. So whenever the alien needed to talk, Maria moved the clothespin around with her chompers. With that problem solved, they finally started filming Greedo's close-up. As time wore on, Maria began to realize that she wasn't getting any air in her mask. She recalled to biographer J.W. Rinsler, quote, It was hot under the mask, and I almost lost my life because I was out of breath. I started to make gestures that were out of the ordinary, and George Lucas noticed and made sure I got help. I had a very bad three or four minutes there, end quote. Aside from that scary moment, the mood on the reshoot set was lively and fun. It was an informal shoot with a small crew that included George Lucas, Gary Kurtz, and George's friend, Carol Ballard, to operate the camera. Most of Rick Baker's team ended up portraying their alien characters on set. John Berg puppeteered Hammerhead, the Ithorian we now call Momona Dawn. He actually finished making the creature on the day of filming, and though it was just a head, torso, and arms, the character looked fantastic. During filming, Berg worked the puppet while Phil Tippett sat in the shadows of the bar and controlled the mechanism that opened and closed Hammerhead's eyes. Controlling the alien's arms was another matter. Berg had a difficult time moving Hammerhead's arms smoothly, which caused the alien to keep spilling his drink on the table. Everyone couldn't stop laughing at the sight. Clearly, at Chalman's Cantina, they make the drinks strong. The fun continued the next day when Figrin Dan and the modal notes were set to perform. The shoot began at dawn. Lane Liska, John Berg, Phil Tippett, and Rob Botton were dressed in costume. They slipped on their bith masks and got up on the stage in the cantina. Unfortunately, Rick Baker was working on The Incredible Melting Man that day, so he wouldn't be able to partake in the fun. Okay, now here's another Star Wars mystery. There were two other Bith Band members on stage that can be seen in the film. According to John Berg, those bandmates were portrayed by two women from ILM. I searched for hours trying to find out who these mystery women were, but we have another Star Wars mystery on our hands, folks. So if you know the answer, let me know. Regardless of whoever was under those masks, there was a lot of excitement in the air that day in 1977. George had envisioned the modal nodes as an intergalactic swing band. So to get the rhythm of their movements just right during filming, George put on Benny Goodman's Sing Sing Sing. The Bith crew danced to the beat, moving their instruments about as if they were playing a jizz tune. Everyone had a grand time, but by midday, the masks had become hot. When you have those things on, it's, it's like putting your hands over your ears. You can hear, but it's really funky. So uh, at one point, 
uh, they, they brought in uh, air for us, uh, like on a scuba tank, and put a little, little tube in there so we could get some fresh air so we could keep filming. Well, uh, Gary uh, said, well, I don't know what's, what that means. And the next thing I know, I feel movement on the mask and I see the tip of a blade going along where these gills are. Thankfully, John Berg didn't panic as producer Gary Kurtz used a knife to cut openings underneath the cheek flaps on the mask. Air was then pumped into the openings and the band members got some much needed relief. Because the job was so rushed and the team was inexperienced, they forgot to put air vents in the masks. Here's Rick Baker reflecting on that major oversight. One of the things I, that I, I didn't even think to mention to these guys, because it was so ingrained in my thing from making masks and all that, you have to be able to breathe when you have one of these things on. And one of the things that they, they found out as the band members is they didn't have, they didn't make provisions in the masks for good breathing or for seeing. They were, had these band, band member masks on, which at first they weren't getting enough air, and all of a sudden you'd see the head start caving in as if we're breathing. You know? So they, they kind of learned, the stop motion guys learned a little bit about makeup stuff on that day. There was one final shot that would make the cantina scene complete, and that was a juicy close-up of Ponda Baba's severed arm. ILM visual effects artist Lauren Peterson was put in charge of creating an epic ending to the laser sword confrontation. The shot would be simple. Ponda Baba's severed hand and head would lie on the floor of the cantina. Lauren used white plastic grating, normally used in light fixtures, as the floor of the bar. To bloody up the severed parts, he used raspberry yogurt mixed with red tempera paint. And to make it even more gruesome, he rigged wiring underneath the floor to make the arm twitch. All of this sounds awesome to me, but when Gary Kurtz watched the sight gag on camera, he thought it was too much. If they wanted a PG rating, they'd have to 86 the twitching and lose the severed head in the shot. Another thing that was changed was Ponda Baba's hands. You'll notice that in the final close-up shot, the Aqualish has werewolf hands instead of the fins he has in the wide shot. I've always wondered, why the heck does he have different hands? Well, the wonderful thing about the internet is that it connects fans with the creators. So why did Ponda Baba mysteriously have different hands in the close-up? Lauren Peterson gave the answer on a Star Wars message board in 2012. Quote, several days before we were to do the insert, Gary Kurtz brought the sleeve with him but not the correct hand. I believe it was the hand for the Wolfman that was owned by Rick Baker. At the time, I did not see the footage that comes before the severed arm. Just some production stills of Walrus Man and the guy with a bad complexion from the waist up and no hands, end quote. So basically, we can blame it all on Gary Kurtz. Maybe Gary had a reason for why he chose the hand, or maybe it was just a mix-up. I'm just glad that we finally have solved one Star Wars mystery before this episode was up. Mix-ups aside, the reshoot was not only a success, it had been a lot of fun to film. Things were starting to look up for George's Star Wars saga. The cantina reshoots would go on to fit seamlessly with the principal photography shots. And I don't need to tell you that once Star Wars was released in theaters, it would go on to change cinema and pop culture from that day forward. Not to mention, 
That scene in Moss Eisley gave us action figures in the 70s and 80s that shaped generations of fans' childhoods. But how did the maker feel about the cantina scene once it was all said and done? I'm sure you can guess. Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to have the cantina be more than what it was. It was originally designed to be uh, lots of very exotic creatures. And when I shot it, I just didn't have the money and uh, the makeup man was ill and couldn't finish the masks. And so I was always left with um, sort of a less articulated monsters and less effective scene than I thought was necessary. And so, in 1997, George made a number of changes to the original trilogy, known as the Special Editions, to, quote, finish the film the way it was meant to be, end quote. In A New Hope, George cut out Rick Baker's Wolfman and sprinkled in a few new cantina characters throughout the scene. The CGI bar patrons are cool-looking, but for the sake of the story that happened behind the scenes, it would have been neat to see the Wolfman on screen. Someone who also shares that opinion is producer Gary Kurtz. That a film is a product of its time and conditions. All of the, time, all of the conditions that we had in 1977, the constraints of money, the constraints of time, and everything else, created that original film. And it was released in that format. I'm not a big fan of of uh, changing films after they're released. You know, Jean Renoir said at one time uh, that he, he learned from, from his father that uh, the sign of a good artist is knowing when you're done. You don't want to damage the work by continuing to work on it beyond the point in which it's good. And knowing when that is, is, is difficult sometimes. Okay, so maybe George Lucas and Jean Renoir don't agree. But whether you like the changes or not, I think we can all agree with stop-motion animator John Berg on why the Moss Eisley Cantina worked so well. What George was going for, I, I believe, was kind of his science fiction equivalent of the, uh, the uh, saloon in old, old westerns. And, and yet, it, and the whole beginning with uh, Lane Liska's character, that little T-bone-shaped character that pops up, the music, everything, there's a, a, a radical change of pace because you have this wonderful foreshadowing when Alec Guinness is saying, oh, geez, you don't want to, oh, oh man. Next thing you're in there and bang, it, the music is really terrific and you're just looking at one bizarre thing after another. Where am I? What is this? I think that's part of the charm of it. The Moss Eisley Cantina scene in A New Hope showed audiences a fantastical world that was magical yet believable. Chalman's Cantina looked like an intergalactic dive bar that was full of regulars who had some legendary tales to tell. The scene has become so ingrained in our American culture that it continues to be referenced in TV shows from The Family Guy. Thank you, we're the Cantina Band. If you have any requests, shout them out. Play that same song. All right, same song, here we go. To late night talk show host, Samantha B. Hi everyone, it's me, Samantha B. I imagine it will continue to be referenced for another 40 years. I am in awe of the talented group of men and women who worked on bringing this wretched hive of scum and villainy to life. Practical makeup effects have unfortunately gone out of fashion thanks to CGI, but I'm thankful that 
anytime we want to watch Hammerhead or Snaggletooth, enjoy a drink at the bar, the cantina will always be there. Many of the masks used in the cantina sequence unfortunately became eroded over time. But I am happy to report that some of them have been given new life. In honor of the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, Rick Baker has done recastings of some of the original molds he used for Star Wars, like the werewolf, the devilish Deveronian, and the veined head Cinetine. You can see the work on his Instagram account at the Rick Baker. Rick actually gave many of the cantina masks and costumes to his friend and mentor, Bob Burns. Bob Burns and his wife, Kathy, own the largest private collection of film props and memorabilia. Bob and Kathy recently sent the original Muftak costume to Tom Spina Designs, who specializes in restoring film props, costumes, and masks. If you want to see the incredible work that Tom Spina and his team did on that furry four eyes, check out Tom Spina, S-P-I-N-A, designs.com. What do you love about the cantina scene? What impression did it make on you when you first watched the film? I would love to hear your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at Jennifer Landa or my Facebook page with the same name. If you'd like to support what we do here on Four Center, we have a Patreon for that at patreon.com slash Center. We now also have merchandise available on TeePublic, Jedi Beat Tees, coming soon. If you're on iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps us get the word out. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for listening. And until next time, this has been The Jedi Beat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.